Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And this week we are starting our Christmas series. Hey, welcome to the holidays, everyone. Yes. And so this year we are starting with a very long, long overdue film for David. Like, what the fuck, man? It's Tim Burton's A Nightmare Before Christmas. Jack Skellington, King of Halloween Town, discovers Christmas Town. But his attempts to bring Christmas to his home causes confusion. Okay, it's been a while since we've done this. What the fuck, David? Why haven't you seen this movie? <laughs> you know what? I have seen the first half of this movie several different times. Mm-hmm. Either because our kids were watching it or I tried to watch it. Mm-hmm. When this movie came out, mm-hmm. it's 1993. I was just too young. Like, just so a skosh too young. Yeah. At so six I. years old, I would not have enjoyed this movie. Mm-hmm. I might have been really freaked out. Probably not, but I still wouldn't have like gotten it and enjoyed it. Yeah, same. I tried to watch it probably when I was around 10 or 11. Mm-hmm. And by that point, my tastes were like sci-fi and I don't know. I was getting into sort of just trying to go through the AFI list by that point. And when I tried to watch this, I was just bored. Mm-hmm. Like I really was. I didn't get it. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't understand why people were interested in it and every time it's come up since it's one of those movies one of those very quintessential movies where i go i totally understand that people like this Mm -hmm. i have never had a desire to watch it yep it's just one of those movies for me yeah i just don't know how it's taken this long i know i saw it in 3d in college when we were dating I think that was something where you probably said, let's go see this. I was like, I don't care. Yeah. (laughs) I don't care. This is one of those films that like, I am not heavy into Halloween. I didn't grow up like celebrating Halloween. So it wasn't a big deal. But I loved the curiosity of Christmas. Like the whole like, what's this sequence is just phenomenal to me. What's this? What's this? There's color everywhere. What's this? There's white things in the air. What's this? I can't believe my eyes. I must be dreaming. Wake up, Jack. This isn't fair. What's this? What's this? What's this? There's something very wrong. What's this? There's people singing songs. What's this? The streets are lined with little creatures laughing. Everybody seems so happy. Have I possibly gone daffy? What is this? What's this? There's children throwing snowballs instead of throwing heads. The busy building toys. That's what the whole magic is to me. Yeah. So what are your like general thoughts about this movie? This movie is fascinating. The charm is definitely there. Mm-hmm. There are entire plot elements that need to get ripped and gutted out of this movie. Agreed. To streamline it. Yep. One of the things that we talked about directly after was that I think this movie would work better as a live opera or operetta mm-hmm. or musical performance than it would in stop motion. Mm-hmm. I think I get sick of the stop motion after a while. They made too much out of this story. They added too many elements. The whole subplot, like you could remove Sally. Yes. You can also remove the whole kidnap Sandy Claus, even though that's a fun song to sing. And like you could literally remove all of that shit. Basically, everything that's happening in Halloween Town, except for the whole like them freaking out because they don't know where Jack is. That's funny and entertaining. Everything else about them, you can lose. The biggest crime to me is Sally. Mm hmm. I actually like the color that all that brings because, again, it's evoking in me opera. Mm -hmm. And that's Danny Elfman really structuring and building this not even as a musical, but as competing motifs and themes in an operatic style. Mm -hmm. 
So having those different characters come in is flavor that makes sense in that kind of world, Mm -hmm. even if they're not major characters. The problem with Sally is that she is brought into this story Mm -hmm. as a coded love interest. Yep. But there is no groundwork laid for that whatsoever. Jack Skellington doesn't pay attention to her until right at the end of the movie. Yeah, we have no notion that they have any relationship at all. And in the meantime, she She's- spends the entire movie being horribly abused and neglected. Yep. yep. And trying to like murder her captor. Everything that's there is so good on its own. Mm-hmm. Shoehorning that in keeps distracting and kind of being boring from the main plot. Which is charming as can be. So we we have three people we have to talk about with writing. First, we have Tim Burton. He's credited as writing the story. He wrote the poem that this whole movie is based on. Then we have Michael McDowell for the adaptation and Caroline Thompson doing the screenplay. Michael McDowell on the adaptation. Before this, he did Beetlejuice and Tales from the Dark Side on television. After this, he went on to do Thinner, Cold Moon, and he is working on Beetlejuice 2. They're making Beetlejuice too. Uh-huh. Is Michael Keaton going to be in it? I believe so. Good. And then we have Caroline Thompson, who is credited with the screenplay. Before this, she did Edward Scissorhands, The Addams Family, Homeward Bound, The Secret Garden. After this, she did Black Beauty, Buddy, Snow White, the TV movie version, Corpse Bride, City of Ember. And recently, she did Welcome to Marwin. So, like, she's done a lot. And she's also played in this arena as well. Now, Tim Burton wrote the original poem. And the only characters that exist in the poem are Jack, Zero, and Santa. Everything else was made up for the movie. So that really explains like why, okay, that wasn't part of the original vision. And of course, to take the poem and make it into a movie, you have to add people. That makes complete sense. Right. But I think they just went too far. Well, I think, again... It all comes back to that one that one character and plotline. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with everybody else. I'm fine with Oogie Boogie. Mm-hmm. I'm fine with Lockstock and kidnapping Santa mm-hmm. because that that needs to happen in order for Jack to try and go be Santa Claus. Yeah, you need the other characters for the flavor, but they need to be side characters, and they yeah. try to make Sally a main character in this movie she's not. when she needs to be another side character to Jack. Mm-hmm. That's just how this story needs to be told. Mm-hmm. Tim Burton, of course, you know, he's mostly known as a director, so I'm not going to go through all those credits, but his writing credits, he did some shorts before this and Edward Scissorhands. And then after this, he wrote Lost in Oz, The World of Stain Boy on TV, Corpse Bride, and Frankenweenie. He said that the original poem was inspired after seeing Halloween merchandise displayed in a store being taken down and replaced by a Christmas display. And the juxtaposition of ghouls and goblins with Santa and his reindeer sparked his imagination. Smart. Which makes complete sense. We've all had that thought or like, oh, my God, we've got all of this Thanksgiving Halloween stuff right next to the Christmas stuff. Like, can't we get through one holiday before we have to think about another one? (laughs) Every single year we talk about it and complain about it. We talk about it, but I don't know that we ever think about the holidays being these discrete entities that would be trying to influence each other. Well, and I think that's one of my favorite visuals in the movie is the doors to the different holidays that are depicted in that forest. It's like, oh, they're each their one single thing i do love that juxtaposition it makes complete sense and also from the mind of tim burton (laughs) makes complete sense 
It does. It does. I will say this. Lots of other filmmakers could have had this idea. Sure. Nobody else would have put it together quite in the same way that he did and inspired the creative team to go in the direction they did. It is always going to be unique because of who inspired it. Okay, next we have to talk about a different writer. It's our composer, Danny Elfman. We're going to talk about him again when we get to cast, but we're going to talk about him here as composer. Before this, he did Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, the television show, The Flash TV series in the 90s, Beetlejuice, the TV series, Army of Darkness, Batman Returns. After this, he did Tales from the Crypt, the TV theme, Batman animated series, Mars Attacks. He wrote the theme for The Simpsons, Mm -hmm. just in case you forgot that. He was the original score producer for Chicago. He did Spider-Man 3, and he also wrote the Desperate Housewives themes, along with 18 billion other things that you probably don't know, or you're like, that sounds like Danny Elfman, it probably is. And then even before that, he was like a hit musician in Oingo Boingo. Yes, he was a member of Oingo Boingo. All of that, put it together. It's like this dude. Like John Williams, he has a very specific style. And when you hear it, you're like, yeah, it's that dude. Danny Elfman found writing Nightmare's 10 songs as one of the easiest jobs I've ever had. I had a lot in common with Jack Skellington. No shit, really? Like, this feels, this is the most Danny Elfman there's ever been. It's just the perfect culmination of all of his stuff. Like, I think about The Simpsons, which is just iconic, and Pee-wee's Big Adventure, which is one of his super big things, which is also Tim Burton's super big thing. Yeah. And it's just like, it really is magical. And it just comes together in this way that it just, it's like glitter is exploding. It's fabulous. His music is such the focus and the star of this movie. Mm -hmm. Without it, it wouldn't work at all. No, there is no movie without Danny Elfman. All of this has to be the way it is in order for the feeling and the emotions to make any sense Mm -hmm. with these characters that are otherwise just dark for dark's sake. Mm -hmm. But he puts so much empathy into the music. And even the dumb songs, like I hate Sally's song. Like I just do. I I don't like it because I don't like her character. But like, I really love the kidnap the Sandy Claus. Kidnap the Sandy Claus. (laughs) I just love it. plan to catch this big red lobster man. Let's pop him in a boiling pot and when he's done, we'll butter him up. Kidnap the Sandy Claus, throw him in a box. Bury him for 90 years, then see if he talks. Then Mr. Oogie Boogie Man can take the whole thing off. It makes me happy. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, really good. Yeah. Okay, next we have to talk about our director. Because it's not Tim Burton. No, and that has always confused me. I have a nice long snippet from IMDb about this from our director, Henry Selick. Before this, he'd done a ton of shorts. Sea Page, Fishbone, Party at Ground Zero, Slow Bob in the Lower Dimensions. But after this, he really kept going with the stop motion. He did James and the Giant Peach, Monkey Bone, Moon Girl, which is another short. Coraline, Wendell and the Wild, which is in pre-production. And then he's also been announced as a director for a TV show called Little Nightmares. So creepy and dark is his thing. 
in stop motion. Like we said, there's been some controversy over all of this. And I'm going to read from the IMDb here. Henry is the director. So he spent more time on set and production than Tim Burton. But Burton has claimed that he is the owner of the story as it was all his idea. He wrote the original poem and he also did write most of the script. He helped create the characters and served as a producer. And he even wanted to direct, but he was too busy. He was doing Batman when they were actually filming this. So like Burton's like, well, I own all of the the movie. But you don't. But you didn't do it. No. Uh, (laughs) That's not how that works. No, I understand. Pop culture has long accepted the film as Burton as the film's heading is Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. Burton does enforce the fact that Selleck directed the film and is often annoyed that people don't remember him for that. On the direction of the film, Selleck reflected, it's as though Burton laid the egg and I sat on it and hatched it and he wasn't involved in a hands-on way, but his hand is in it. It was my job to make it look like a Tim Burton film, which is not so different from my own films. When asked on Burton's involvement, Selleck claimed, I don't want to take away from Tim, but he was not in San Francisco when we made it. He came up five times over two years and spent no more than eight or ten days in total. Walt Disney feature animation contributed with some of the use of the second layer for the traditional animation, but Burton found the production difficult because he was directing Batman Returns and was in pre-production on Ed Wood. So Burton just was like, here you go. Here's the thing. Go make it. It's one of those things that it's... Like John Hughes films. I don't care who directed the movie. It's a John Hughes film. It's really what it comes down to. And I think one of the things that makes it so hard for Selleck is that his style is so similar to Burton's. Yeah. If his personal style as a director was completely different, then it would make sense to be so freaking annoyed that people are confused that Burton didn't direct this. Because also, Burton is more heavily known as a director. Yeah. And also, I would be a lot more angry about this if Henry yeah. Selleck had not ever gotten to make another movie again. Correct. He's had a very wonderful career. He's fine. So this is more of like him yeah. totally just being like, yeah, it's a little annoying. No, totally. He has every right to be annoyed. Yeah. And Burton could be a little less of like, it's my movie. I did everything. You didn't. Just be gracious with just- that. Have your name on the poster and say like, hey, a lot of people made this. Yeah. Okay, production. It took a group of 100 people three years to complete this movie. And for one second of film, up to 12 stop motion moves had to be made. Yeah. People forget how stop motion works. We get so used to animation. Stop motion is just amazing. I think a lot of people especially now, recognize how much effort goes into something like that. I think now that we have so many more behind-the-scenes videos because there's such a demand for how things are done that people have more of an appreciation for it. Like Kubo and the Two Strings that came out a couple years ago, people watching like how they were able, like there's this one sequence where like a creature is rolling and just watching how they make that happen. It's fascinating. Well, and people obsessed over this movie too. Oh, like, sure, I, I did. I gotta say though, That's, I think, one of the drawbacks of the movie. Mm -hmm. If you're not into the style, and I'm kind of not, yeah, like it's just not exactly my aesthetic, after a while, I just keep going, okay, I don't care anymore. I want to see somebody actually do this. The animation style and aesthetic is just boring to me. Because everything's so great, because everything is so dull-toned, on purpose, and it's, it's exactly the right choice for what it's doing, but my eye is going... It's bland. I'm done. So 
They've recently done Beetlejuice on Broadway. I mm-hmm. haven't listened to it yet. I plan to. It's supposed to be phenomenal. And I think, okay, well, could they do this on Broadway? But you know what? I don't want this on Broadway. You know who I want to do this? Cirque du Soleil. I want a Cirque du Soleil interpretation of the story with this music, and I think it would be amazing. Cool beans. I would go for that in a heartbeat. Cool. Done. Make it so Vegas. Because it's just, at that point, there's a better dynamic Mm -hmm. that is going to engender more empathy because otherwise it gets real flattened out on screen. Mm -hmm. It just does. Which I can imagine seeing this in 3D was a trip and a half. Yeah. Two items were invented to facilitate the filming of the movie. One was a light alarm, which would warn the animators if any of the stage lights failed to come on. And the other was a system that enabled a puppeteer to seamlessly switch to a replacement puppet if a puppet broke during a shot. Prior to this, either situation, a lighting failing to come on or a puppet breaking would destroy the entire shot. Yeah, that would make sense. So I I love that. I love it when we make new technology for shit. I live for that crap. You would love a full broadcast of the Oscar Technical Awards with an explanation of what they did. Fuck yes! (laughs) I am the dork who would watch that. That would be more interesting to me than the actual fucking Oscars sometimes. I don't know. This last year they did pretty good with no host. I enjoyed that. I just didn't like who they awarded top prize. That made me want to scream. Ooh, brother. Oh, if you want to hear us throw some hissy fits, go listen to last year's. Mm. It was tough. Mm. Never talking about that movie again. Nope. All right, let's go to our cast. Okay. Danny Elfman provides the singing voice for Jack Skellington, as well as Beryl and the clown with the tearaway face. I mean, who else is going to do it? The person who provided Jack's speaking voice is Chris Sarandon. And the trivia kind of goes back and forth. Chris Sarandon was cast because his speaking voice matched the singing voice. But then they also say that Danny Elfman said that he would do the singing voice because Chris Sarandon said he was a bad singer. So it's kind of like... Well, it's probably Ch- both. Chicken egg. It was like, okay, this this will work. Before this, Danny Elfman had performed in Hot Tomorrow's Long Shot and The Forbidden Zone. After this, he was in the first Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He provided Oompa Loompa voices. Mm-hmm. And then The Corpse Bride, of course. Apparently, Tim Burton and Danny Elfman experienced creative differences during filming. And for this reason, Burton chose Howard Shore to write the score for Ed Wood. I'm going to be honest. Uh-huh. Danny Elfman's the wrong guy to write the score for Ed Wood. I agree with that. But also, calm down, Tim Burton. <laughs> like, <laughs> calm down. I really like his voice. I, I think he does have a really good singing voice. Oh, it's gorgeous. What it sounds to me like is, of course, as the composer writing these songs, he records himself singing them. Yeah. And that just worked for the character. And so then it's like, okay, well, can our actor sing yes or no? And Chris Sarandon... It's been very clear. I cannot sing. (laughs) No. And if they match up enough, okay, great. This works. Let's go on. Chris Sarandon as Jack Skellington. Before this, he was in Dog Day Afternoon, The Princess Bride, Child's Play. After this, Dark Tide, a bunch of TV. He was on Felicity and Judging Amy on television. I mean, it's Chris Sarandon. You know who he is. Prince Humperdinck. Prince Humperdinck. He's great. It's seamless. I could not tell who's who. No. They have to really be listening. They really do a wonderful, like, they match almost perfectly. Yeah. Good job, dudes. <laughs> right. Catherine O'Hara as Sally and Shock. Before this, she was on SCTV, Beetlejuice, Betsy's Wedding, Home Alone, Home Alone 2. After this, she was in Wyatt Earp, A Simple Twist of Fate, Tall Tale, Waiting for Guffman, Orange County, A Mighty Wind, Six Feet Under, Frank and Weenie, a ton of television, including the series of Unfortunate Events, Shit's Creek, The Addams Family, and she's got a 
bunch of new stuff coming up, including the series Last Kids on Earth. We love you, Catherine O'Hara. You're the best. Ugh, comedic genius. Love her. Love her so very much. We hate her character. Yeah. Like, that's just it. And her voice is fine. Like, her singing voice is really lovely. But I don't care. She's doing a great job Mm -hmm. with what she has to work with. There's just not a lot to work with. Mm -hmm. Nothing in here makes me blame Catherine O'Hara. And in fact, I think she makes Sally as three-dimensional as she possibly can. Mm -hmm. It just never quite gets there. Yeah. In 2013, she participated in Danny Elfman's music from the films of Tim Burton to perform Sally's song from the film. She received a standing ovation when she entered the stage as well as when she left. That makes sense. Yes, because she deserves that. Well, and also people love Sally. People do love Sally, and I understand. She's the only heroine in the film, so you're going to latch on to that as much as you can. For me, I think what it really comes down to, Sally needs her own story. Mm-hmm. Like, this movie is not for her story to be told. Yeah. She needs her own story, and we need to see that on its own. Yeah. Because otherwise... It doesn't work. Hmm. All right. Next, we just have a bunch of Arpons. Ooh. We've got William Hickey as evil scientist. William Hickey is just a very long-standing actor. He he played Uncle Lewis in Christmas Vacation. So he's got that very specific voice. Boy, howdy do I hate that character. Yeah, I hate that character, but his voice is perfect for it. He does. We have Glenn Shaddix as the mayor. Uh, You know him from Beetlejuice and Heathers. So good. So good. Paul Rubens is Locke. <laughs> it's Mr. Pee Wee Herman. Then we have Greg Proops as the Harlequin demon and the sax player. And then we have kind of like a big deal Arpon is Ken Page playing Oogie Boogie. He was on Sable television. He created the role of Deuteronomy in Cats. He's been on South Central TV, Alice in Wonderland, and he was in Dreamgirls as Max Washington. Ooh. So, like, he's a legendary dude. Yeah. Yeah. His voice is lovely for Oogie Boogie. Oogie Boogie's great. I don't know which is worse. I might just split a seam now if I don't die laughing first. Mr. Oogie Boogie says there's trouble close at hand. You better pay attention now, because I'm the boogeyman. And if you aren't shaking, there's something very wrong. Cause this may be the last time you hear the boogie song. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm boogie, boogie man. Release me now. Okay, Oogie Boogie was originally intended to be Dr. Finkelstein in disguise, but Tim Burton was infuriated by this, so he, like, he literally kicked a hole in the wall. I would be too. Yeah. That would be so bad. Why couldn't Oogie Boogie been the one who's like, captured sally like get rid of dr finkelstein and just have oogie boogie all right let's get into some trivia trivia vincent price was originally cast as santa claus however after the death of his wife his own health began to fail and his voice performance was very frail and weak and the tracks that they had recorded with him were deemed unusable which led to selick's regret and having to recast the role oh yeah that sucks That does stink. And I totally understand why it would have to be done. Mm -hmm. But just imagine hearing the voice of horror suddenly appear in the only close to wholesome role in the movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, my God. 
in the scenes with the street band, especially inside the town hall, there is a small man inside the base that is based on a Danny Elfman. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. That's very funny. In 2001, Walt Disney Pictures began to consider producing a sequel, but rather than using stop motion, Disney wanted to use computer animation. Tim Burton convinced Disney to drop this idea. He says in quote, I was always very protective of Nightmare not to do sequels or things of that kind. You know, Jack visits Thanksgiving World or other kinds of things just because I felt the movie had a purity to it and people like it like that. Yeah. And I can was- see a world where you do have a sequel to this movie, mm-hmm. but it needs to be a very specific story. It is stated in the making of book that the most difficult shot to film in the entire movie was the shot in which Jack is reaching for the doorknob to Christmas land. Viewers can see a perfect surround reflection of the forest around Jack in the background. That is like any time a character is looking at their reflection and you can you're right behind them in the mirror. Like that's so hard to actually film. Mm-hmm. Like any of those hall of mirror type shots. And especially if you're having to also animate that yes to make it look like that's happening you have to know what that actually is and get it right and it's just ugh, all the angles that that hurts my brain you have to see something that's not actually there which is no thank you patrick stewart did the original introduction for the movie which can be heard on the film's soundtracks i didn't hear that that's upsetting mine it is i love patrick stewart zero's nose is actually a tiny glowing jack-o-lantern precious Zero's adorable. The Kidnap the Sandy Claus music is heard in the Haunted Mansion Holiday Ride at Disneyland California and Disneyland Tokyo as an instrumental version. I love it. Makes me so happy. In the song This is Halloween, the lyrics Tender Lumplings Everywhere refers to Tender Lumplings, a song done by composer Danny Elfman when he was in Oingo Boingo. (laughs) In the first few seconds after the title is shown, you can see that there are actually seven holiday doors. Going clockwise, the doors are... A pumpkin for Halloween, a decorated Christmas tree for Christmas, a turkey for Thanksgiving, a brightly colored egg for Easter, a four-leaf clover for St. Patrick's Day, a red heart for Valentine's Day, and then there's a red, white, and blue firework that can only be seen at the very beginning for a few seconds, and that door is assumed to be for the American Independence Day. Yep. Which makes total sense, but also, if they're worried about explaining that, then they didn't need to have Thanksgiving, because that's an American holiday. This is the first fully animated Disney film to not be traditionally animated. Okay. This film, along with the live action traditionally animated hybrid film, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, are the only films under the Touchstone Pictures labels that are considered official Disney films. That makes sense. This film was originally supposed to be under the Disney banner, but when it was decided that it was too dark for their younger audiences... Michael Eisner moved it to the Touchstone label. Smart. And it was only after the re-release in 2006 that they call it a Disney picture. Yeah, and not knowing how this movie is going to get received when it comes out, that makes total sense at the time. Since October 2001, a seasonal overlay of the Disneyland Park California and Tokyo Disneyland Haunted Mansion attractions called Haunted Mansion Holiday, which combines the characters and setting themes of the rides and the characters in the storyline of this film. However, in order to achieve this, the ride is closed for two and a half weeks in the late summer so it can be redecorated for Christmas and then reopened again before closing in January. However, the Haunted Mansion at Walt Disney World in Florida is not rebranded as Haunted Mansion Halloween. Yeah. It's kind of sad. That makes sense. 
Why wouldn't they do it in Florida? Because you have so many moving parts in Florida. And if you shut down that ride, it's one of the most popular rides in the park. Like, I get it, but I think that's why... They can't... Okay, so in Florida, they shouldn't shut it down until after Halloween. And then you just shut it down for those two weeks in November. Because then... Because they start putting up Christmas November 9th. We were there. (laughs) I don't know, man. Yeah, it's crazy. The only other thing I could think of is that the families that come through Disney World, there's so much more kids that they feel like we will get a better audience attraction in Disneyland where more adults kind of pass through on daytime passes and stuff. Mm -hmm. Originally, a longer version of Jack trying to get to the true meaning of Christmas through science was fully animated. Some of the best gags, including a scene of Jack doing illustrations of Santa and his monster form, were cut simply due to time purposes. Uh, Why is that not in there? Yeah, anything that doesn't point specifically to Jack trying to understand and recreate Christmas is wasted and unnecessary. Uh, Put that joking man some of the presents jack delivers to the kids are nods to tim burton films the snake looks like a sandworm from beetlejuice the shrunken head from the afterlife waiting room in the same film the cat and duck are both featured in batman returns and the cat as the mascot for the department store and the duck is the vehicle that the penguin drives very cute i like that and the only human adult face shown is Santa Claus and a woman reading a book to the elves in Christmas Town. All the others are only shown from the neck down. There are no other adults. Huh, that makes sense. Which I also love. So yeah. that that's it. All right. Yep. Okay. So it's going to be our rating scale. There's so many options. Go with your gut. How many zeros? How many zeros are we going to give this movie? Oh, I love it. I'm going to give it a two and a half. I'm going to go right down the middle. It's a two and a half. I enjoy the experience of this film. Love the music. Love the stop motion animation because I just think that's fucking cool. But the story sucks. So it's definitely not one that I have to watch every year. Wow. The way you you talked about this movie, I thought you were going to go way higher. Nope. It's a two and a half for me. Man, I'm going to go with three. Whoa. (laughs) I love it when that happens. There is so much about this film that is really enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I understand why people love it. Oh, yes. Agreed. And if it is your aesthetic, mm-hmm. that's totally cool. The thing I kept coming back to was I love the music. I love a lot of the story. There's mm-hmm. one particular part that is just aggravating as hell. Mm-hmm. And then for me, the aesthetic is the problem. I get disconnected because it feels real samey real fast. Mm-hmm. Instead of having something more dynamic to latch on to, I wanted real actors doing this. Mm -hmm. And it's just how I felt during watching that movie. So I think it's solid. I just don't go over the moon crazy for this movie. It's a three for me. Okay, well, I'm surprised. I thought you were going to give it a two. No, I I enjoyed it. I Mm -hmm. really did. I just didn't connect with it a lot. Yeah. I agree with you. I totally understand why people love this movie. Yeah. And if oh, you are, yeah. if you are a hardcore Halloween person, which I'm just not, then you're kind of already cut off halfway through the film. Like half <laughs> this film you don't give a shit about. But I love Christmas and I love this concept. There's a magical element to it. It's just not for me. Fair. Yeah. Fair. What's up next? So next time. We're going to do 1960s Babes in Toyland. Oh, boy. This was a like 
classic required viewing for me. <laughs> and like this one's a little bit unusual because it's not a straight up true blue Christmas movie, but Christmas is an important factor in the film. Yeah. So that's why we're con- we're including it in our Christmas movies. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, until next time. Bye everybody. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.